welcome to two psychologists for four beers. <laughs> oh, you gotta stop. I feel bad about myself. <laughs> Welcome to Two Psychologists, Four Beers. I'm Yoel Inbar. With me here, as always, is my friend and co-host, Mickey Inslicht. How are you this unseasonably warm October evening, Mickey? I am actually uh, sore. My hands are practically bloodied. Um, I'm feeling a bit beaten up, to be honest. Uh, please explain. So I decided, uh, for mood uh, uplifting reasons, solely, not for health, uh, to try out a uh, a box fit class, or if you if you want, if you prefer, you well, you can call it a boxer size class. Uh, so yeah, you know, I put on uh, some some wraps, uh, some gloves, and uh, we did aerobics. Not aerobics. It's mostly it was a, a series of punches, uh, but also with some um, uh, some burpees and uh, lunges and kind of aerobic exercise in general. It was fucking hard, man. It was very difficult. And I took off my gloves. And I was like, oh my God, I got like, you know, uh, swollen knuckles. Um, so really this is for training for when you, you know, you cross some line eventually. Yeah, we know it's going to happen sooner or later. When was the last time you punched a human? Oh my God, punched a human. I mean, I, I play fight with my children all the time, but we're not going to yeah, count that. Yeah, no, like, you know, trying to do damage. Oh my God. Jeez. Uh, I don't really remember the last time, but uh, I'm going to say grade eight. Uh, the last time I punched a human, uh, I think I punched uh, a kid in my class named Jason Gibarovich, who uh, I don't exactly know why we fought, but I did punch him in the face in grade eight uh, or possibly grade five. I'm not exactly sure which grade. <laughs> I'm sure I had a comment. What's his name again? Jason Gibarovich. Yeah, fuck you, Jason. <laughs> what about you? What was the last time you threw a punch? Around the same time, around middle school. Yeah, this guy, Nathan, I don't remember his last name. I also need him in the nuts. I, I was not a fair fighter. I fought dirty. Oh, man, I, I, I've also pulled out that move before. I mean, listen, all is fair in love and war, right? Yeah, that's that's how it goes. So, uh, yeah, so sorry to anybody we um we punched in junior high. I Did, did you end up winning that fight or no? You know, listen, Yoel, you, you know me well enough. I, I, I won pretty much all my fights. That's right. Once you go in, you go on hard. You fight to win. <laughs> it was for, for us, it was I, 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 inconclusive. Although I suspect that, uh, you know, if there hadn't been authorities intervening, that he totally would have won because he was quite a bit bigger than I was. Uh -huh. Well, see, I was always the smallest person, but because of that, I was extra, extra ferocious. You have moxie. All right, we ought to get off this topic uh, before we further cement our bro reputation and uh, talk a little bit about what we're drinking. So I was in charge of beer selection today, uh, which means that, again, we are drinking things that I found in my fridge that people brought here for a party or something. So we are drinking today Bose Lugtread, which is like, I would say, a well-respected Toronto beer. Is that fair, Mickey? Yeah, that's fair. I mean, it's, uh, it is a craft brewery and... Uh... Yeah, I think it's it's good. I mean, it's not one of my favorites, uh, but uh, I will take this uh, any day over most, uh, well, certainly over any ma macro brew and over many micro brews as well. Right. It's sort of like a down the line. I just want a regular beer, but I want it to be like pretty OK. Yes, exactly. And it's a, uh, a lagered ale, which we discussed this earlier. 
I don't think either one of us knows what that means. It's not a lager. It's not an ale. It's something in between. I actually don't know what distinguishes those things. Um, and I hear James have those, if he actually listened to our podcast, you know, screaming at us right now, because of course he would know what the difference would be. He's just going to chime in on Twitter to tell you you look like an elephant testicle or something. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and he will certainly make fun of, uh, he'll make some tea drinking reference uh, about you. That's right. All right. Well, cheers. Cheers. Yep. Tastes like beer. Tastes like beer is yummy. Yeah. It's yep. good. Yep. So, uh, Mickey, I hear that you are looking to ban applause on our show. Care to comment? Yes. Uh, <laughs> uh, well, I, I, well, you're applauding right now. Uh, just so our listeners know, uh, Yoel is uh, you know, using jazz hands to applaud uh, my, uh, my little little monologue that's about to happen, I guess. <laughs> no, the, 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 the reference here is that uh, the Oxford uh, Student Union banned applause uh, at Oxford uh, Student Union events and um, instead uh, mandated that students, you know, instead of using applause, they would use the British Sign Language version of an applause, which is, you know, the Bob Fosse, Bob Fosse jazz hands things. Uh, I can, if you don't know what that looks like, just Google it. Um, and the idea here is that uh, there are some people who might be triggered, who might be anxious by, I guess, loud noise, uh, and this would avoid uh, such uh, such violence. Am I? I'm not sure if I'm using that term correctly. Um, but th this is the idea. And, and actually, Oxford is not the first university to do this. They're, I believe, uh, second or third. So Manchester University in the UK and um, the National Union of Students, also in the UK banned uh, applause in 2017. So you can imagine the uh, the uproar among centrists and, and more... Uh, got people on the snowflake beat. <laughs> I heard that term very recently. There's a beat in journalism covering the kind of the, the extravagances of, uh, of students around the world. And this was, you know, got, caught the eye of a number of people, including Jonathan Haidt. Beautiful. So well done. I'm jazz handing you in appreciation. <laughs> so what do you think? I mean, are you, uh, you, you kind of rolling your eyes? You, uh, what, what, what is your thought about this? Uh, you know, I think this is sort of, uh, what is interesting about it is if you think about it, like why are we committed to the idea of applause per se? It, it sort of seems like arbitrary, like, okay, you bang your hands together. Germans bang on the table. I don't know that like wiggling your fingers is any more or less ridiculous or arbitrary than those other things. And if, there exists like a sufficient number of people who don't like loud noises. I actually like, I obviously this is not like a clinical thing, but I don't really love loud noises. Like I would rather not have loud noises. Sometimes I find applause kind of irritating and it's like, yeah, I kind of, I might prefer if everybody were silently wiggling their fingers. So like, if that's the new norm, I, I think I'm happy with the new norm. Actually, <laughs> I, so I'm, I'm, I'm signing on to this is what I'm saying. I mean, so you, I think you make a really good point. I mean, like, okay, so students went out with a new norm and there's nothing, nothing yet, nothing real about applause. Other than it's a norm that has been around for, well, I imagine for a long time, but although I have no idea when, when the norm of applause uh, started, but I imagine it's been around for a few hundred years at least. Yeah, I honestly have no idea. And this is research that I should have done. 
Um, but, you know, I mean, we change norms all the time. And why be so attached to this particular one? It just seems like a really weird hill to die on to be like, I'm going to go to the mat to defend a plotting. That is really super important. Right. But to, but to push back a little bit, it's also a weird thing to pick on um, because there are lots of loud things in our real world all the time. And 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 whether they ban it at the student union or not doesn't change the fact that applause is part of the norm in, in, in Western culture. Um, and it's used as a very positive sign. So it, kind of seem, it does seem like a strange thing to fight against as well. So I agree to change the norm like who gives a shit um but uh, to complain about it uh i mean i understand why again folks on the snowflake beat uh would be kind of up in arms with this but in the end do i really care not really yep well i guess we're on the same page here and uh in celebration of that let's both wiggle our fingers all right uh and no one uh no one could tell that we were happy and joyful and we were not doing that ir- were, we, were we doing that ironically or no no that was uh, i wasn't doing it ironically were you Maybe a little. Oh, man. I'm disappointed in you. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So what do we have on the on the docket tonight? So we are going to talk about the CESP conference, which just happened here in Toronto. And I should say shout out to the organizers, uh, Jeff Lenardelli, uh, Jason Plax. I'm sure I'm leaving out lots Liz of people. Page Gould. Liz Page Gould. I believe Alison Chastine. Uh, many folks at uh, University of Toronto. And CESP, by the way, is the Society for Experimental Social Psychology. They had their annual conference here in Toronto. Right. Right. Um, And all the U of T grad students who helped out as volunteers and made the whole thing happen. So um, we wanted to talk a little bit about our impressions of the conference. And then later in the show, we're going to air some interviews with um, victims who we sort of grabbed during the coffee hour and made come on our podcast. Yeah. So we kind of had this uh, zany idea of like putting together a bunch of questions, standard questions that we asked uh, whoever we could find and was interested in talking to us. Uh, which was not everybody. There were some people who said no. Um, and uh, But we got a, a four people who I think are, you know, uh, cool and interesting and have diverse views. Uh, so it'll be cool to hear their opinions, I think. Um, but maybe before we kind of uh, air the uh, the interviews themselves, uh, maybe we can kind of say, uh, talk just a little bit, not very long, about our, our impressions of, of the conference itself. Yeah, so what did you think? So... Uh, I'm not a regular attendee of CESP, uh, mostly because it conflicts with another conference that I go to around the same time of year. And I, I, I picked this other one, which is a, uh, a psychophysiology conference, uh, which I, I, I like uh, uh, quite a bit. Um, but it's a, it's a conference that has a certain reputation, uh, kind of uh, maybe seen as a bit of an elitist conference, an eminent conference. And it's the, the reason it has that uh that reputation is because it is, it is in fact that by design uh, to be a member of CESP, uh, one needs to be, I believe, five years post PhD, and I believe you need to have a uh, a tenure track position, or maybe not, uh, maybe not a research stream necessarily, but I believe anyways there, there's some a couple of hoops you need to, to to go through and not many people you know especially graduate students postdocs of course don't don't have uh the right to join so it's, it's viewed as a kind of um again uh this elitist kind of organization and i remember when i attended as a postdoc it was a frightening frightening experience it was not actually a positive experience at all because it, it occurred you know uh, right at the beginning of the school year uh right around job uh, you know season and of course i was applying for jobs and there were many people who had jobs who were at the conference and I was like 
trying my best to, to essentially to ingratiate myself to, to people who had jobs and, you know, were quote unquote networking, but it was just uncomfortable. Um, people had, you know, everyone had status other than uh, the handful of graduate students or postdocs who were there. And it was just unpleasant. I didn't like it. I liked, I like it a lot more as a faculty member uh, where I don't have to worry about these things as much. But I spoke to some students of ours uh, at the University of Toronto today, and, and they had... Um, I think similar experiences, you know, where there's a clear divide between uh, graduate students, and there are, again, so few, and uh, professors. So it's kind of an intimidating place a little bit. Um, so that was my impression uh, beforehand. Um, what, what about you? Well, it's funny. I had actually a very similar experience with Cesp when I was a postdoc. Um, that It was in, I want to say, Maine, and I was a postdoc in Boston. And and so I, I, I drove up um, from, from Boston. And I actually had this experience on the way where the hood of my car like flew up on the freeway and like cracked my windshield. Oh my God. Yeah, I know. So I was like driving my fucking busted ass Toyota Corolla with this bent up hood and this big crack in the windshield up there. And just, I, I just felt like a loser and it is, um, the, like the height of job market season and like makes for a lot of social comparison. And I remember in that year, uh, Kurt Gray was like killing it on the job market. And I saw that guy there and I was like, oh man, he's just like so much better than me in every way, which is probably still true, but you know, it's just less salient to me these days. Um, and yeah, I, it, it was kind of a high anxiety time. Not that any of the senior faculty like did anything or, but you're just like in this situation where you know that you're like lower status than them and that you want something that they have. And it just feels kind of bad to be there. Yeah. Yeah, it does. And it, it, but it is kind of amazing how once you're on the other side of it, um, you, you, you quickly forget how weird it is. Um, so I remember, you know, there were, there were a few students who I knew from uh, not necessarily from university of Toronto, but from other, other walks of academia and I meant to say hello to, but didn't. But and then I wondered why didn't they say they, why they didn't say hello to me? It's because well they're probably scared and and, and nervous to say hello. Um, and I should have made should have made more of an effort. But yeah, it's not nothing that the faculty or the professors are necessarily doing. Um, but there is this built-in status difference, and, and yeah, it's uncomfortable. Yeah, and you are an intimidating figure. You might just <laughs> punch them in the face. <laughs> But I mean, aside from that, uh, any other kind of more, you know, of course, we're neither one of us are, are graduate students now or postdocs now. We're in a different stage of our careers. So what, what was your overall impression this time around? Well, you know, I've gone, um, I would say to like about one of three. Um, and I usually enjoy it. Like the talks are good. Um, and this was no exception. Like I saw some stuff that I liked. Um, and as I've gotten older, I know more and more of the people there, so it was a great opportunity to catch up with friends. And I had some people over at a party that you actually attended as well, which was really nice. So socially, it was great. Um, Research-wise, I'd say it was like above average. Uh, I do hate the way they're always giving each other awards. No, no offense to any of the people who won awards, and some of whom actually gave like very nice talks. But still, it's like, yeah, do you got to give Jack DeVito another award? Dude is old and famous. You know what I mean? Right. Right. So, um, yeah, overall impressions. Did we did we cover everything that you wanted to cover? What were yours? Uh, yeah. So I think I mean, I so uh, you mentioned some of the highlights uh, for me as well. So your party was a highlight. You had a great party 
uh, co-sponsored uh, by Rachel Rattan. Yeah, so we should give her credit for the, uh, she was really the intellectual force behind this. Yes, and, and she fucking cracks me up. Um, and she, uh, you guys bought a bunch of, uh, it was kind of a pre-Halloween party and a bunch of us dressed up uh, with uh, with things in advance. So, so Paul Bloom showed up as a pee hacker, uh, which is hilarious. Um, and I just kind of had put a mishmash of uh, whatever was on offer uh, on, on your table. Um, but it was lots of fun. Cool. Yeah, you uh, you really brought the Halloween spirit, and uh, I, your costume looked amazing. And hopefully, we'll be able to post a picture, maybe on our, maybe on our Twitter, maybe on our blog of you in costume. Sure, sure. I don't mind. Yeah. Uh, I know a lot of people got a lot of uh, enjoyment of seeing my costume. Um, I thought it was it was all right. You brightened everyone's day. <laughs> okay, that's good. <laughs> So, yeah, so your party was the highlight for me of Cesp, I'll be honest. Um, so, all right. So, uh, shall we, uh, as we mentioned, we've got a bunch of uh, kind of random people, uh, excellent people who we, you know, pulled into a room, a quiet room or quiet-ish room uh, at the the first day of Cesp. And maybe we should apologize in advance. Uh, we had a, um, a lesser quality microphone for this interview, one that we could at least carry with us. Uh, so, the sound isn't as great as, you know, the mellifluous sounds of our voice uh, typically. Uh, but uh, we will be loud enough and uh, hopefully we'll clean it up uh, so that everyone can enjoy. So uh, with that, we'll leave you with the interviews. Hey, uh, so Laura, do you want to tell our listeners who you are and what you do? Sure. My name is Laura Nimi. I'm assistant professor of social psychology and global justice at University of Toronto. I'm in the school. Um, I'm in the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy. Um, right now, I'm at uh, Cornell. I'm a visiting assistant professor in the psychology department. How do I get put in charge of global justice? <laughs> um, well, you know, you just got to be really, really um, pissed off about things and think that things are unfair a lot. I can do that. Oh. Uh-huh. Yeah. This morning, I didn't get a seat on a streetcar. I found it to be extremely unfair. <laughs> So just getting enraged. Yeah. That's right. Full of rage. Okay, Mickey, we have some serious shit to ask. Yes, the first very serious question. Um, what was the last beer you remember drinking? Oh, <laughs> um, I had, I think, a hazy IPA at this place, Hopshire, um, out in kind of near the Finger Lakes in, in Ithaca. Mm, tasty. It was pretty good. Excellent. Um, okay, so now uh, for real serious questions. Uh, what are you most excited to be working on right now? Oh, um, I, I'm working on a bunch of projects related to moral, ju- moral judgment and moral cognition. Um, but I think I'm, I'm really excited about some stuff we're doing on how to recognize um, causal judgment in language. Some, some new techniques on that. Okay. Um, do you think there are areas or topics that are understudied in social psychology, or if you want, we can take that more, make that more broad, psychology more general. Uh, uh, you know, so what topics should social psychology or psychology focus on that is currently not or not enough of? Yeah, yeah, I think um, I think there's some exciting stuff going on right now, connecting how moral judgment is conveyed in language, um, and how that connects up to actual behavior. Um, how everyday people think about major issues, um, policy relevant issues, how those everyday judgments um, get conveyed in really precise bits of language. Um, That's the stuff I get excited about. Um, And I think people are kind of getting more excited about that broadly in social psychology. They they have been for a while, but it's nice to see people, um, even in the lay public, 
start to pick up on some of these themes. Mm, yeah, that's sort of different in that it's a little more interdisciplinary and it also like it's a little more, if I were being pejorative, say applied, although for sure. applied research too. Yeah, yeah, yeah for yeah. sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm 100% on board with that. Like, I think we need to be doing more of that. Mm -hmm. um, if anything, what do you think we are getting wrong today in social psychology? But again, we can make it broader. Feel free to name names. <laughs> <laughs> what is Nikki Ann's like getting wrong? Get, getting wrong? Yep. Um, well, I, I really appreciate um, a lot that's been going on. Um, I, 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 I'm for um, that approach, um, but I, but I, um, <laughs> I'm, I'm not for a punitive approach and um, I'm not for filling out a form to make things very standardized to repair broken systems. <laughs> So I, I, um, I really appreciate the story kind of way that we, we write about our experiments in psychology. And I love reading old psychology for that. Um, and I don't want to lose that. And I don't want it to turn into a, a practice of just filling out a form to talk about our psychology. But we do need to standardize things or it's going to, you know, we're going to continue to be in a mess. So hopefully we can get that balance. That wasn't me answering your question about what's wrong with psychology. It was more of a hope to how to like think, you know, we can kind of get a balance between, you know, talking about our theory and getting a standardization, um, an improvement in standardization. And and also um, not being overly punitive um, in how we convey these things. I would love to see something where people are just kind of describing the process, their exploration in almost a blog format in a way that they can do it and just feel open and um, share with each other and just not get scared about doing that, not feel like they're going to be scooped, um, just to have that kind of sense of wonder and have that be part of psychology more. That's great. Um, last hard-hitting question. Huh? Um, what do you think the future will hold for social psychology? Uh, another way of asking that is how will social psychology look different in 20 years than today? Uh, what do you think? Yeah, I think people are going to demand that it's relevant to their lives. I think that um, people are going to, people, I, I often just think about what people, the lay public, we often refer to them as, which is folks want what they, they are going to demand is that, you know, the results are interpretable, that they make sense to their health, to their life, to, to, to their their families um, themselves. So we need to, yeah, communicate that stuff and show that it replicated, that it's real. I'm making air quotes. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I think that that's what we're going to see. We're going to see the evidence um, be strong um, and um, people better able to convey that. Okay. Um, all right. This is the, the, our last question. Uh, not so hard hitting. Uh, so can you recommend one thing uh, uh, that you enjoy? Uh, can you recommend it to our listeners? That's, this could be a book, a movie, a TV show, a podcast, or anything for that matter. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I mean, getting out into nature is my number one favorite thing. So um, yeah, just like driving out around um, right now in the Northeast while the, the leaves are changing, I'd be like, go now, now's your time. <laughs> All right, excellent. Well, thank you so much for agreeing to this impromptu interview. Uh, you, you know, we, we just literally asked you a few minutes ago, and you were gracious enough to uh, to say yes. So thank you very much. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for joining us. Uh, before we let you go, anything you want to plug uh, for our listeners? Book, website, Twitter? 
Oh, oh, this incredible podcast that you put on? <laughs> this oh, obviously gone. this. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. All right, thanks, Laura. Thanks so much. Hey, Hannah, thanks so much for joining us. Do you want to tell our listeners who you are and what you do? Yeah, uh, my name is Hannah Chapman, and I'm an assistant professor of psychology at uh, Brooklyn College and the City University of New York. And can you tell our listeners a little bit about what you study? Uh, I study emotion and moral decision-making, which is kind of the boring answer. The more fun answer is I study disgust uh, in a lot of different forms and uh, how it affects our cognition, things like our memory and attention, and also our moral decision-making. All right, first hard-hitting question. Uh, what was the last beer you remember drinking? I think I have beer amnesia uh, because I have a, an eight-month-old baby, and I'm not sure I've had a beer since uh, since the baby was born. So fond memories of beers in the past, but it's been a little while. All right, so it's fuzzy memory. Yeah. Um, excellent. Oh, not so excellent, but uh, <laughs> thank you for the honest answer. Uh, what are you most excited to be working on right now? I just started some new research looking at um, attitudes towards uh, bathroom access rate for transgender people, um, which, uh, you know, in, in my field of moral psychology, we spent a lot of time studying this kind of hypothetical, like way out there situations. And I'm really excited to be uh, working on this bathroom access stuff because it really matters. Um, you know, this is, this is a really important right for transgender people. So I'm excited to do some work that has some, some real implications. Do you have data yet? Can you give us a little preview of what you're finding? I do. Um, so if you look at the the kind of public narrative about uh, bathroom laws, you know, some states are, uh, are uh, writing laws that restrict transgender people's right to use the bathroom that conforms their gender, gender identity. Other states are uh, supporting, kind of affirming that right. Um, if you look at the kind of debate surrounding it among people who are opposed to um, access rights, there's kind of two themes. One theme um, that kind of comes to the top is, oh, it's dangerous. So it's dangerous for cisgender women and girls, especially, to have transgender people um, in, uh, in the, um, what's the right word, gender-conforming bathroom. So there's that line of narrative. But then you also get people just saying, like, that's just disgusting. I don't want those people in my bathroom uh, with me. And so the question is, well, is it both? Um, is the concerns about harm, is that just like a smoke screen for um, people's more kind of visceral concerns, like just these kinds of people make me uncomfortable. And that's really important because how are we going to uh, address, you know, how are we going to try and change opinions? What should we be focusing on? And um, what my research is suggesting, uh, a little bit to my surprise, is that it's really about these more visceral concerns. That's really what's coming out as the, um, the strongest predictor. At least um, when you ask people explicitly what are they concerned about, sure, they'll say that, oh, yeah, I'm concerned about um, a risk to cis women and girls, but that's not as strong of a predictor as just, uh, you know, thinking that they're feeling uncomfortable, feeling disgusted by um, people who aren't conforming to traditional gender norms. Right. So surely people know that if you're trying to convince somebody that you're right, I'm grossed out isn't a good argument, but these vulnerable yeah. people are put at risk is a good argument. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Do you think there are areas or topics that are understudied in social psychology? And if so, uh, what do you think we should be studying a bit more? Um, 
I mean, at least in my, you know, I, I know my own field of moral psychology the best. I think that studying the real world a little bit more, um, especially when you study disgust again, you end up kind of looking at these really far out there hypotheticals, some weird stuff that I won't mention uh, on the radio. Um, but again, there are these real issues that matter to real people um, and that, that do tap into these kind of visceral, kind of primordial concerns that people have. I think we should spend more time talking about that and less time with these weird hypotheticals about, you know, that one time in France. Um, Just to be clear, this is an R-rated podcast. So if you want to go to siblings, <laughs> it's totally cool. Yeah, I mean, my lab, we always joke, you know, we end up talking about the chicken sexer uh, kind of a lot. And like, like ad nauseum, ad chicken nauseum, sex diet. Like inevitably yeah. this, the story is this person who has sex with a dead chicken, which, you know, like, I guess that's the, the right of the chicken sexing person. But maybe there's like one person like that, as opposed to all the transgender people out there um, for whom this is uh, this is really important. Right. So your pitch in general is it's time for us to move to stuff that actually has real world importance. Yeah, I think so. Or at least have that be a, a larger focus within the within the field. Within the moral side. Yeah. Yeah. All right, so this next question, it's possible you already answered it, but let's, uh, let's see. Um, if anything, uh, what do you think we are getting wrong today in social psychology? Maybe that's the same thing, at least in my little corner of the world. Um, you know, of course, there are areas of psychology that study stuff that really matters. Anyone working on prejudice, like that's obviously has real world implications. But this moral stuff matters as well. Um, you know, people's, there's some really neat work showing that uh, moral conviction is this really strong predictor of, uh, of attitudes. And um, the political discourse is really morally laden. So, so let's bring those two worlds a little bit, the real world a little bit closer together with the research in moral psychology. Okay. Um, last hard hitting question. Uh, what do you think the future will hold for social psychology? So in other words, what do you think social psychology will look like in 20 years time? And how will that be different from today? Yeah, I mean, I guess I could talk about what I what I hope. Of course, I'm not, you know, everyone knows about the replication crisis and our big struggles to kind of improve what we do. I hope we do a bit more slow science. Um, you know, all the all the good stuff about larger samples, uh, less flashy work. I, I guess this is more an aspirational talk. I really hope that that doesn't end up being even more of the rich get richer because um, slow science is slow and expensive to do. And that means that people with less resources can do less of it. And so I'm, I'm a little concerned that it might go in that direction. Okay. Uh, it's the last question. Uh, can you recommend anything that you enjoy that uh, to, our, to our listeners? This could be a book, a movie, TV show, podcast, or anything else. Yeah, um, I just started listening to a podcast called Pitchfork Economics, which is, um, it's this guy, Nick Hanauer, who is a sort of zillionaire and uh, also very interested in uh, deconstructing the neoliberal ideology and that kind of economic consensus that's really taken hold in the last uh, 40 years. And uh, that's a really interesting intersection of um, how these kind of economic ideas have are have uh, become accepted, even though the, they're they're not actually true, and how that informs, um, you know, especially I live in the United States now, and how the U.S. political system has developed. So, pitchfork economics. Is pitchfork great. economics, mm -hmm. great. Um, last thing, uh, is there anything of yours that you would like to plug? Website, book, Twitter. You know, um, I've actually made a conscious decision to do less 
social media. So in some ways, it's kind of old school, old school science. I do have a website. Uh, it's the emotionmoralitylab.com. You can check out uh, what we're up to uh, there. Great. Well, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, and uh, great to talk to you guys. Thanks. Yeah, thanks for, for being on. Pam, thanks so much for joining us. Um, introduce yourself to our listeners, please. Hi, I'm Pamela Smith, longtime listener, first time caller. Uh, I am a social psychologist by training, but now I'm one of those people who crossed over to the dark side. I'm at a business school, the Rady School of Management at UC San Diego. And can you give our listeners just a quick idea of what you study? I study power. I study what the effect is of having different levels of power on your thinking, the decisions you make, your behavior. Um, these days, I've been focused even more on what leads people to get power, what leads people to be seen as powerful. What was the last beer you remember drinking? Uh, well, the last beer I remember drinking was at the Person Memory Pre-Conference, but I'd rather forget it because it was some sort of god-awful generic lager. However, the first beer that I do want to remember, the last beer I do want to remember drinking was when we went to Flying Monkey and I had their pumpkin ale, which I would normally avoid like the plague, but it was really tasty. And also it was a 10% ABV, which was unexpected, but pleasurable. Yeah, that was nice. So we were, uh, we were there a few days ago. And in fact, Joel, you'll be uh, happy to learn that I bought a couple for us for our podcast. In fact, maybe we'll drink it when we do our little promo for, for this oh, episode. Oh yeah. Um, yeah, where are my two beers? <laughs> we need come with beers. We're going to be downing them afterwards. Yes. Yeah. Right. Sorry. Thanks to you. <laughs> um, what are you most excited to be working on right now? I have a student who's been asking questions, and her questions have led us to try to follow up on research in the field, and then we find out that those original effects are not what they were the first time around because now we're running studies that are better powered. Um, That's, I think, a very common uh, <laughs> yeah. occurrence that we know, no one hears about, but it happens all the time. No. So she has some, um, we'll just talk, so she has some very interesting work on norm violation. Because of, shall we say, the present political climate, um, and we'll also the upcoming election, um, I've had a lot of research, uh, a lot of research interest, and other people just have general interest and who we see as powerful and who we want to give power to. And we've been looking at different things and she was interested in norm violators. And there's a little bit of an idea out there that people think norm violators are powerful. We don't find that, we can't find it. And she's actually been looking at pro-social norm violations um, in particular, where that is a place where you might be able to make a case that somebody who violates a, a norm for pro-social reasons, like if you think of costly signaling theory, um, sorry for the listeners who don't know what that is, um, but it's a theory that would predict that, oh, if somebody is going to go to great lengths to do something pro-social, you might view them more positively. Totally don't find that. Hmm. Um, so I'm very excited about that line of work. And she actually, despite the ease of doing these scenario-based studies on MTurk, she actually came up with a norm violation paradigm in the lab which is a total pain. One of the great lessons of doing research is what you intuitively think is a good manipulation is usually crap when you actually expose it to normal human beings. So there are a series of iterations of, okay, we need to find something they actually see as a norm violation, but she found something, recruited a crew of RAs, which is not so typical to do in the business school, but 
Um, again, you know, despite this nice real life norm violation that was prosocial, people were not, people saw the person as being less powerful. They did not want that person to be a leader in a subsequent task. So now you're kind of back to the drawing board in a way of like you are hoping to build on this past stuff and you can't even get the past effects to... Well, but we find the reverse. And so oh, we're like, that's... and so now, and we're basically, we, and this is one of the things that comes up when you're like, I, the thing I've been trying to focus on with her is that let's not perseverate so much on why those other people found whatever they did, because there are a lot of reasons for it, but let's focus on what seems to be the reasons we are finding what we are. So let's look at mechanisms, let's look at process. Um, and that's been really exciting and interesting. And it turns out that based on the measures we're using, people really care about, even though everybody think about thinks about power as being linked to agency, um, particularly when it comes to who we want to give power to, people really care about communality. Who's going to be a good person? Who's going to do the right thing? Um, which in the end is a good thing. So I would argue. As an aside, by the way, have you done video before? Because you're like, I think speaking really smoothly and also uh, cognizant of what our listeners might and might not know, which sometimes you and I are not cognizant of whatsoever. <laughs> Why? Thank you, Mickey. Um, no, I've never done radio before, but I will credit a lot of time teaching MBA students where like, there is a, again, for those of you who are ever contemplating getting a job at a business school, there's a huge performative aspect. So I've been recorded a lot while teaching. And you also just have a radio voice. I feel like Mickey, you should just fire me. <laughs> Welcome to two psychologists four beers. <laughs> oh, you gotta stop. I feel bad about myself. We should use that for for the intro. That's great. Um, this is awesome. Um, okay, so do you think there are areas or topics that are understudied in social psychology? Uh, if so, uh, oh. what do you think those might be? I, you know, I was racking my brain on this and I mean, I could come up with specific examples that would be of benefit to me, like hierarchy was a thing for a while and not it's, it's, it's less of a thing, at least in social psychology. I think one of the things that's frustrating and probably impossible to address is that we are so, there's, we're so trend driven and I know I'm arguing Unlike everything else in the world, we shouldn't be trend-driven, but it's so weird that I can just, it's like, I, I'm sure if I did a content analysis, it would be amazing to see. And I was talking, I think you might've been part of this conversation as well, Yoel. I was talking with some friends who had also talked with you about this after SPSP, this last SPSP, where they were like, where's the JDM research? Like, you know, for some very good reason, there's a lot of stereotyping and prejudice and discrimination research, which is always big in our field, but now because of world events, it's especially salient. And that's great. But then it, it it's this zero sum. And so other stuff falls by the wayside. And then something social or political will happen. And then the stereotyping stuff will probably fall by the wayside. And then we will reinvent the wheel. Um, yeah, I, I think that's a great point. So I don't remember this conversation at all. And sorry, I know we're trying to like get through the questions or whatever. Yeah. But I think this is a symptom of a discipline where you don't have agreement on what's important to study because you mm. don't have good theories. Yes. So you're kind of chasing, you kind of have to hook it to something that people are interested in or justify it by like pointing to some current events or whatever. Mm -hmm. And that means you're sort of at the mercy of what happens to be happening. And yeah, like a couple years ago, or maybe last year at CESP, it was all income inequality, right? Oh, because yes, like yes, that yes, was in yes. the news, right? Oh, yeah. So it just, it just, it kind of feels like we're just veering around. Um, so this next question is, I think it, it's a natural follow-up to the last one. 
um, and maybe the answer is the same for you. Um, if anything, uh, what do you think we are getting wrong today in social psychology? I mean, I think in the, part of this is going to be influenced by the fact that we're hiring right now. So I was, and I'm on the chair of the hiring committee. So I just slogged through almost 300 applications. Uh, my apologies to giving a heart attack to anybody listening who is on the job market. It's like, that's, yes, this is how many job applications we get. It's crazy. Um, where I realized that the, one of the things we are still getting wrong is that we claim that we care about people doing a broader variety of research. We claim that we care about bigger samples, but we also claim that we're interested in more behavioral measures. And we claim that we're interested in people doing work on less, um, I was going to say weird populations. That's, you know, the whole, like something other than college undergraduates in the United States. Um, but then I realized, I'm like, oh, we are still rewarding people based on publications. And it is true now more than ever, if you want a publication, maybe people are paying more attention to sample, but they're very happy to let people do, M and I do research on MTurk as well, but they're willing to have people do these online studies that don't necessarily map well onto behavior and just run a bunch of them. And it's, you get penalized if you want to do careful work. You get penalized if you want to do work on people other than college undergraduates or people who are willing to do online surveys for 50 cents a shot. Um, so what do you think the future will hold for social psychologists? So in other words, how do you think social psychology will look different uh, in 20 years than today, if at all? God, I don't know. Um, I mean, the things I'm worried about, again, this goes hand in hand with being an old lady and becoming much more aware of how the sausage is made at universities is I'm wondering, like, what is the job market going to look like? How many, like, our job market is shrinking and places are less willing to hire uh, faculty in tenure, tenure trap positions. Our funding is, I'm bleak, I'm so sorry. <laughs> but I'm like, you. the funding options are drying, are not looking so great. So I'm, and then the expectations for publication are growing up. Um, so I'm just wondering what that's gonna look like. That, and I don't know, but there, I mean, one of the things I know now is that what I'm, I, so one thing I'm curious to see how this works is if our if we're going to get better at interfacing at people who work in industry, because that is becoming more socially acceptable because it kind of has to, like people need jobs. But it would be good if we would have easier ways for people to, to interface with people with industry where they can still feel a part of the conversation, even though they're not working at a university. And I don't know if we have a good model for that yet, but I think that's going to be important because I know I'm... I have good students. Hey guys, if you're listening, um, but I know some. You know, being a good being a good student, being a good researcher is not enough anymore to get a job in a university. So how do we keep those people in the fold? And they have access to all sorts of interesting things. They can do some very fascinating research that could illuminate what we're studying in different ways. And how can we keep them in the fold and have them not feel like they're pariahs? All right, so last question. This is an easier one. Um, can you recommend uh, one thing that you enjoy uh, to our listeners? This could be a book, a movie, TV show, podcast, or anything else. What, is this where I'm supposed to say you should really listen to two psychologists, four beers? You win this interview. <laughs> <laughs> 
It doesn't um, even make any sense because they're already <laughs> listening. So. Keep listening. No, I do love podcasts. So I will say there's one... For those of you who are parents out there, um, a podcast I really love is called One Bad Mother. It is two women who are moms, and it is the greatest. But you don't have to be a mom to listen. You don't have to be female to listen. You don't have to have children to listen. It is the most beautiful, supportive environment. And when I was, so my kid's four now, so I'm almost getting out of the trenches. But when I was in some dark days, it was just so amazing to listen to this podcast and have them say things. They're just this very, it's a very non-judgmental space. They talk about parenting stuff, but in a non-judgmental way. And they just have these sort of mantras like, you're doing a good job. You're getting better at this. And I would just be driving to work being like, I'm getting better at this. I'm doing a good job. And it was very helpful. So I highly recommend them. Excellent. That's a great recommendation. Uh, before we let you go, is there anything of yours that you would like to plug for our listeners? Uh, website, book, Twitter account, anything at all? Oh, God. Um, I was not prepared for that question. Um, I have a student, Yidan Yin. She is going to be going on the job market, the postdoc job market. Um, I highly recommend her. Please give her a job. Beautiful. We will put a link to her job market site in our show notes. Yes. Awesome. Thank you so much for, Thanks for, for being joining here. us. All right. Thank you. Okay. Mickey, do you want to take a quick break? Yes. Definitely want to take a quick break and uh, we'll get back to you. This is the part of the show where I tell you how to contact us. So we are on Twitter at at Four Beers Pod. You can at mention us or DM it. We uh, both check that account. If you'd like to contact us via email, our email address is fourbeerspod at gmail.com. Finally, our website is fourbeers.fireside.fm, where you can listen to the current episode as well as any of our back episodes. And you can also drop us a note there as well, if you like. Uh, one last note, if you're enjoying the show, please take a moment to rate and review us on iTunes. It helps other people discover us. The more ratings and reviews we have, the more discoverable we are. So thanks very much for doing that. Mickey, am I missing anything? I think that's good. But you know, certainly keep up the reviews. We've got a bunch in the past few weeks, which we so appreciate. And uh, we read them. And uh, so, yeah, keep, keep that up. We, we like it. All terrible. One more negative than the last. <laughs> Absolutely. 
So Keith, thanks so much for joining us. Um, would you mind introducing yourself to our listeners? Sure. I'm Keith Maddox, and I'm an associate professor of psychology at Tufts University. And can you tell our listeners a little bit about what you're studying? Yeah. So I do some research. Um, I'm kind of all over the place, but um, for the most part, I'm interested in mental representations of people in group. Um, for the most part, I've been focusing on mental representations of African-Americans. And in particular, I'm interested in how we think about variation in physical characteristics like skin tone and other features and characteristics of the face. And and the extent to which people who have um, what we think of as more typical features might be thought of and treated differently compared to people who have less typical features. So more typically African-American features? Yes, exactly. All right. The toughest question of the day. What was the last beer you remember drinking? <laughs> yeah, that's hard. Um, so I do drink beer quite a bit. Um, so we were at a brewery. Um, so I was here for the person memory interest group. We were at a brewery, the Flying Monkey Brewery. And um, it's funny, I don't remember the name of the last one that I drank, but I do remember the most salient name of one that I drank at a flight. And it was uh, unfortunately called Blurred Lines, um, but it was an IPA and it was, uh, you know, it was good. It was delicious, but at the same time, a little problematic given the line and uh, the association with a Robin Thicke song. I don't know if anybody remembers the song Blurred Lines. Oh, no, oh, yeah. I, I, so, I'm not sure what the, what the oh, reference no. is to. It's a, it's a terrible song. It's essentially sort of talking about the blurred lines between, you know, sort of approaching somebody who might be um, interpersonally attractive and approaching somebody who might be drunk or not, and that there are blurred lines with respect to, um, you know, what's appropriate in those kinds of situations in case they're intoxicated. So it's a, it's an inappropriately named beer and song, frankly, but um, but it was it was really good. Yeah, it's a dilemma as a song because it is like a, a great song, you know, musically, yeah. uh, and then it's also a bit rapey, and yeah. so you're like, it's, it's <laughs> you know, what exactly. do you do with that? Exactly. And, and, but that's a, a common enough expression that I I would imagine the brewer yeah. brewer did not name it after the song. No, that's uh, uh that's that's probably not the case. I'm, I'm sure that the blurred lines for them are probably the sort of the integration of a couple of different uh, types of ingredients. But um, I think that song made um, reinvented that term for a lot of people, right? So it's been appropriated. Okay, I, I did not know. Um, all right. Um, so what uh, what are you most excited to be working on right now? Uh, you know, it's it's really funny. So I am um, I'm in an empty nest situation uh, to some extent. So I have um, a couple of grad students who just recently graduated. Um, I've got another grad student who's um, finishing up her dissertation. Um, we're doing some research there that has to do with um, confrontation and the extent to which you can confront racial bias in different kinds of contexts and the extent to which that has an impact on, um, in this case, the people who are members of the underrepresented group that you're ostensibly attempting to support and that teachers may have some different challenges with respect to how they go about confrontation efforts um, in ways that are going to be seen as authentic and supportive to the people who are members of underrepresented groups. Um, so that's one thing I'm really excited about. And then I'm also really excited about some of the work we've been doing more recently. So kind of apart from the stuff I described earlier with respect to racial phenotypicality um, or phenotypic uh, characteristic um, amongst African-Americans, but um, been trying to do some things to try to understand some of the barriers that keep people from wanting to engage in interracial dialogue, to talk to people about race, um, particularly um, talk to people from other groups about race. And I've um, done a couple of different studies sort of looking at the extent to which um, anxiety might be one of the mediators of that, that people are anxious about interracial interactions and particularly white people's anxiety about talking to blacks about racial issues um, for a variety of reasons. You know, it's uncomfortable, it's it's new, it's novel. Sometimes they might be um, insecure about 
their opinions or um, their knowledge base. And so those things prevent people from wanting to engage. And we uh, did a really interesting study um, a while back with uh, a graduate student, Jennifer Schultz, where we tried to use an emotion regulation um, framework to encourage people to engage in interracial context and interracial dialogue. So I'm really excited about that and moving it forward. But as I mentioned, the empty nest problem, um, I got no students to do it. <laughs> so I'm having a little bit of challenge in terms of trying to wait, find ways to make that work move forward. Um, but I'm, I'm hopefully going to be able to do that. So just a quick self-indulgent follow-up, because I'm, I'm really curious about one thing that you mentioned. So this intervening um, or confronting racial bias, this would be in the context of like, I'm a majority group member, let's say I'm a white person, and somebody makes a biased comment um, against black people, let's say, and I intervene and say like, oh, that's not okay. Yeah. And the implication I felt like was that there, there might be a wrong way to do that, that actually backfires. Yeah, in a lot of ways. So I mean, I think in some ways, uh, so we kind of think about this in the broader sense of different types of confrontation efforts that, um, you know, so one way, a lot of people don't think if there is a, there's it's one type of confrontation that's about a particular comment that's been made, and that comment in the kind of confrontation that I described is one type. The other type is sort of just thinking about, you know, for the most part, liberal white people who are well-meaning, thinking about trying to just communicate the idea that racial bias is a thing and that it's affecting people in society. So um, in both cases, there are different ways in which individuals might be perceived, but when they do make a confrontation effort, sort of the style that they do that, the, what they do, um, and for minority group members, perceptions of their perceived authenticity or the reasons or motivations behind them doing it, it's gonna have a big impact on how it's affected. So um, I think to the extent to which um, an individual is seen as being authentic and sort of well-meaning in terms of their confrontation efforts, then that person is going to be more likely to be supported. But if they think that they're doing it for another reason, that there might be some ulterior motive, um, perhaps just to sort of look good to other people, um, perhaps they're being compensated in some way. So these different things lead to perceptions of inauthenticity, and then that kind of undermines the, the benefits of those kinds of um, confrontation efforts. Right. So you're looking there at the perceptions, particularly of minority group members. Yeah. yeah, right. So like this like progressive white person signaling thing where I'm like rolling my eyes. I can imagine the minority yeah. group members are like, oh, Jesus Christ, give me a fucking Yeah, breath. exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And again, it's really funny because there's this fine line that you want to kind of increase, you know, the size of the choir, so to speak. And I think it is important to sort of increase the likelihood that majority group members are going to sympathize um, with some of these situations and try to do some work to convince people that racial bias in other situations might be problematic. But um, it's hard because if you are um, sort of suspicious of their motivations and what have you, um, and I, I have a little sympathy for the idea of like being a, a liberal white person who wants to do these things, um, but yet you have to sort of balance this fine line in terms of doing them the right way. And that's a challenging situation. And I think a lot of times people just get frustrated and give up um, when they get too much criticism from, from minority group members. So um, it's not that that criticism isn't necessarily warranted, but I think what we're really interested in trying to do over time is to try to give people some strategies to empower them to do confrontation, to kind of think about how to approach these situations in a, in a way that's respectful of, you know, one, just sort of the goal of reducing racial and other types of bias, but two, does that in a way that also respects the, you know, the mindsets of the the individuals they're, they're trying to protect. Wow, this is fascinating. Um, and I feel like I really want to have you on to like actually get into this more. But we do, we're, we're supposed to be like on our list of questions. <laughs> we have right? a structured like, interview that he is looking at and I'm totally derailed. <laughs> I apologize. Okay, no problem. Um, all right, so do you think there are areas or topics that are understudied in social psychology? And if so, uh, what do you think they are? Yeah, that's interesting. I'm not sure I have a good sense of this. I mean, I think, uh, you know, if, uh, if anything, 
some of the things that that um, that do concern me, and I don't feel like it's understudy for any good reason, but I, I'm really excited about people who are interested in intersectionality and having more intersectionality research move forward. Um, because again, it gets at the complexity of the real world and the complexity of these situations. So I understand as scientists, we need to you know start with trying to understand relatively macro um, and um, you know simplistic situations, but identity, intersectionality, and understanding from that perspective how those individuals as perceivers sort of make judgments about the world. I think we don't do that quite a much, quite as much, and we should do more of it. And again, there's some realistic constraints on that in terms of your participant populations, but I think we, we need to try to overcome those constraints. Okay, so this next question is, I, it, it, it might reiterate what you just said, but let's see what, what you got. Um, so if anything, um, what do you think we are getting wrong today yeah. in social psychology? Ooh, that's a good question. What do we get wrong? It's not necessarily sort of theoretically, but in terms of like sort of how we're approaching the replication crisis and things like that, I feel like the, you know, so there's a lot of, um, um, I guess, acrimony, right, amongst some individuals, again, who are sort of like older and more entrenched in the old ways and feeling defensive um, compared to people who are on the, um, you know, sort of the vanguard, the forefront of changing um, methodologies and, you know, critiques of things that happened in the past. And I think of it in a, in a way, I'm not sure this is um, a great analogy, but um, you know, oftentimes when I think about um, kind of doing things like conf confrontation having to do with racial bias, um, I recognize that that when people are on another side, um, they're learning things that they haven't been exposed to before that are often, you know, very ego threatening. And the extent to which they're ego threatening doesn't necessarily mean that it makes it right or sorry, wrong to challenge them. In a lot of cases, like the challenges to the, you know, the status quo are legitimate challenges and should be reflected. But what we probably need to do is think about ways of communicating those challenges that that does take into account that a threatened individual is going to be a little bit more defensive and a little less likely, you know, just based on that threat. It's not that you're wrong, it's that they're they're not able to see that you're wrong. So I feel like if there's a little bit more sensitivity to understanding how it feels um, from the perspective of somebody who's entrenched in some kind of ideology, how it feels to, to slowly lose track of that, to lose that grip, um, if we were better at understanding that process, we could probably figure out ways to confront, again, racial bias, open science, et cetera, ways to confront that would be more likely to sort of, um, you know, so, to, to not lead to backlash, right? To not lead to people to sort of resist in, in difficult ways. And I feel like, you know, that's a nuanced thing that not many people understand. It's if you're right, you're right, and you should be able to say that you're right. But if you want to make progress, you have to figure out a way to say that you're right in a way that sort of understands the psychological processes of the people that you're trying to convince. So I feel like we'd have a lot more progress um, in this area if we were a little bit more sensitive to that. And again, this now makes it sound like I'm, um, you know, sort of um, attacking those people who are coming up with these criticisms. But I think it's, over time, I think we're gonna find some kind of a balance where um, those individuals who are feeling a little bit more threatened will be able to start to see some of the merits of the arguments that they're threatened by. And I mean, I think the other part of this is just trying to figure out how to get it done. Um, because when you're, you know, stuck in your ways, the idea of sort of changing how you go about doing things is really, really difficult and threatening. And so it's practical and sort of, you know, um, um, sort of ego threat that you have to sort of overcome. Yeah, I think that's a great answer. I mean, I think, I think that more often than I'd like to see, uh, there is kind of um, an ignoring of the human side yeah. of this struggle. Um, and even if, you know, one side's right or more right than the other side, doesn't mean there's not humans on both sides. And we sometimes lose, lose, you know, lose sight of that. Yeah, that's a great way of putting it. Yeah. 
Um, okay, last uh, hard-hitting question. Um, what do you think uh, the future will hold for social psychology? So to maybe make that slightly more uh, concrete, how will social psychology look differently uh, in 20 years than today if, if, it, if it changes? Oh, okay. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, I mean, that of um, my own sort of personal beliefs is that, you know, we're going to be a lot more diverse. And I think that there's a lot of benefit to that and that. Um, you know, I think the, you know, even the challenges with respect to the growing diversity and support of people from underrepresented groups and the idea of focusing on certain kinds of diversity versus others, I think it's all good. But I think um, sometimes what gets lost in that is that the racial and ethnic diversity, it's, I, I find it a little bit more compelling compared to other types of diversity. But I think for the the same reason that all diversity is good, the racial and ethnic diversity is, is um, maybe even more important because it gets us to, you know, it, it kind of, there's this whole range of questions that we deal with in our society around race and ethnicity and the challenges that are associated with that. And those questions don't get asked because the people who are experiencing those problems that might be motivated to try to address them, they're not a part of our field. So I'm, I'm you know, going back to what I'm excited about is sort of the increasing racial and ethnic diversity of social psychology. And again, I think that diversity in general is good, but I guess I'm one of those people that sort of prioritizes some over others. Um, so I think we're gonna look different in the future. If we can continue to keep people engaged um, and maybe start to, uh, to go back to some of our roots in terms of thinking about ultimately trying to obviously develop theory, understand mechanism, but then trying to go forward and say, well, but the proof is in the pudding. Can we actually put these theories into practice in real world context and practical application? And that when we start to sort of marry those two things together again, and that it's not something that some people do and other people do, that every researcher has a way of thinking about themselves with respect to the consideration of practical applications when they're developing theory, the de consideration of um, theory when developing practical applications. If we're all a little bit better at doing that internally, which may not be a practical goal, but if everybody's thinking in that that way, then I feel like the field is going to get a little bit better at trying to, to, to support itself in terms of thinking about the things that we think and we know about the world are actually going to help to change the world. And I think if we're, I think we're going to move in that direction, at least I'm hopeful that we will. Okay. Uh, so that was the last hard question. This, is the, this next question is uh, not so hard. Um, can you re recommend one thing that you enjoy uh, to our listeners? That could be a book, a movie, a TV show, a podcast, anything. Oh, okay. Um, let's see. So. Uh, Let's see. So I have a, so people make fun of me because um, for whatever reason, when, you know, some shows start to take off and get really popular, I don't, I don't find the time to sort of watch them. But um, at some point they hit some critical mass where I decide I need to watch them. So I've gotten into this little habit of binge watching shows like, and it kind of turned into a contest. And so I try to binge watch them and I don't really try this, but if there's a finale that's coming up. So for example, I did this with um, with Game of Thrones. So I binge watched Game of Thrones in something like 19 days. And I got caught up to, I think I was um, I was caught up by the last three episodes. So I was able to enjoy the last three episodes. But that's like 72, you know, multi, <laughs> I mean, it's just, it was an absurd, absurd goal. But something happened and I just found or made a little bit of extra time and I got through a season sooner than I thought. And it's like, I might be able to do this. And then I also realized that the last season was a lot shorter. And so it wasn't again 13 episodes, it was only six or seven. It's thinking, wait a second, it's gonna get easier as I get along. So, um, and then of course the episodes were longer, but you know, I didn't factor that in. So, um, <laughs> so yeah, that's a long, long answer. No, that's great. But you know, Game of Thrones is something that I really, really enjoyed. And I think I enjoyed it a lot more than people who had sort of 
Because again, I think a lot of people, without giving any spoilers, were maybe disappointed by the ending. But that would have been a lot more disappointing if I had been waiting eight years for it <laughs> than waiting, you know, basically 19 days. So um, I really enjoyed Game of Thrones. And then I recently did the same thing. The first show I binge watched was Breaking Bad and did something oh, similar. I did the same thing, actually. Yeah, and it yeah. was, and I, I, that show just never got worse. I mean, every single episode was just a little bit better than one before that. And if anything, I wasn't, I had a little bit of disappointment in the last episode because it was sort of a, without again giving spoilers, a kind of a doex machina sort of um, uh, resolution, but um, loved Breaking Bad. I just recently watched The Wire. Um, and, you know, again, being a somebody who studies stereotyping and prejudice, um, I took a lot of, I took a lot of shit for it because I hadn't watched that show. But then once I did, it's just, it's an amazing, amazing show. It's not only entertaining, but it's also relevant. And I think that's what, um, again, Breaking Bad for me was just, I, I, it's hard to identify with the characters and think that any of these situations were really realistic, but um, The Wire was very similar in terms of kind of the, the structure of its storytelling, but told stories that were really, really relevant and just seemed to, it felt, it felt more like education than entertainment, right? So maybe it's a little edutainment, but um, yeah, so I would recommend those three shows um, to the Hill. Excellent, yeah. Omar, Omar Little. Omar uh, Little, oh uh, gosh. We did had an episode where we were naming uh, our favorite HBO characters, yeah, and you all and I both independently named Omar. Yeah, I remember, yeah. And then, um, again, spoiler, well, in this case, this is a spoiler alert, but uh, we'll put it this way. I did not enjoy the resolution of Omar's story. Yeah, no, just that was, I wasn't happy with that idea. Yeah. It was incredibly yeah. disappointing, yeah. and it's almost to the point where I, I actually drew parallels between that and... Um, the resolution of uh, Khaleesi's arc in the Game of Thrones yeah. in the sense that there is this, this, and it's not so much about that person's actions in both cases, but the idea that I had expectations and aspirations for that person that then weren't realized. And I realized the story's going to end in a different way. And I almost walked away from it at that point. I was so pissed. Yeah. And, um, but I'm glad it didn't, right? It, it ended up being a great show. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Last thing, is there anything you would like to plug for our listeners? Uh, book, website, uh, perhaps you're looking for graduate students? Oh, that's funny. Yeah, you know, I am looking for graduate students. Um, so I'm going to be recruiting uh, for people to start in 2020. Um, I actually, I wrote a little bit of a manifesto this year because um, I wanted to be a little bit clearer about sort of my expectations for grad students. So I talked a bit about my advising philosophy, um, sort of like my the ways in which I think about our PhD program as being consistent or inconsistent with people looking for careers outside of academia. Um, and then um, also my, my interest of developing my skill set with respect to open science. And, you know, I don't know if it's going to be a big surprise, but I'm one of those dinosaurs that's a little resistant, but not so much about the ideas, just about the practicality and sort of where to start. And um, I'm also an old, old guy because, you know, there's too many places to get information on the Internet. And so at that point, when there's too much, then I sort of shut down. So I'm also interested in trying to make sure that you know, whatever new graduate student comes in, that they're going to be either able to lead in these efforts or at least willing to follow in these efforts as well. So I definitely want to expand um, and do a lot more with respect to creating a, a lab environment that's a lot more consistent with the open science um, um, open science principles. That's fantastic. Yeah. You have that manifesto posted publicly somewhere? <laughs> that's or? funny. No, it's just been emails to students who have, um, who have inquired, but I am thinking about um, I'm probably going to just put it on the website, it's on my lab website, but I haven't done that yet. Yeah, if you do, we can put it in the show notes and people who are interested oh, yeah. can go check it out. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Keith, for, for, for being on. We kind of just literally asked you uh, five minutes before you yeah, came no. on. And I am, I'm absolutely very happy that you did because I was, yeah, I was thinking like, oh, this would have been, a, this would be fun. It would definitely be fun. And so, yeah, if there is any other opportunity to come on the show, I would love to do that. This yeah, we definitely should. We'd love to have you back. Yeah. yeah. It'd be great. Yeah. All right. Thanks so much. Okay, you're welcome. Right, thank thanks. you. All right. So, right. So we're going to uh, kind of 
in, in a way, uh, continue uh, with our interviews, but now answer the questions that we posed of our victims, guests. Um, we'll answer them ourselves. And maybe before we start, maybe we'll just kind of thank uh, uh, the people who were so kind to give us, uh, you know, 10, 15, 20 minutes of their time. So Laura Niemi, uh, Hannah Chapman, Pam Smith, and Keith Maddox. Thank you so much. Uh, it was very generous of you. Yeah, thanks. We really appreciate it. All right, so we'll begin. Uh, well, I don't think you need to introduce yourself, UL. You are UL. Uh, and you don't even need a last name, I don't think. I'm like Sharon Madonna. <laughs> That's right. Um, and we'll skip the beer question as well, since we're bearing, we're, we're now drinking uh, Bose Lugford. We're still drinking that. Uh, okay, so I'm going to modify the first question uh, that I ask everyone else, and that is, um, what talk uh, at CESP, at this meeting that we are kind of talking about, most excited you uh, at the conference? Or what research that you, that you heard about at the conference most excited you? Yeah, so I'm going to cheat a bit and, and nominate an entire session. Um, and that was causal effect heterogeneity in experimental social psychology. So that was chaired by Niall Bolger. Um, and uh, Richard Gonzalez uh, of University of Michigan was the discussant. And then the talks were Yuichi Shoda, uh, Niall gave a talk, um, Lauren Kennedy gave a talk, and uh, Jeff Router gave a talk. So basically all of these talks were about the idea that people are going to respond to experimental manipulations differently, and how can you model that in different ways? I thought it was just super smart, super insightful stuff, um, obviously statistically sophisticated, but then also, you know, when you have these statistical tools that allow you to model different patterns of responses by different groups of people, it, it makes you think much more carefully about what are my expectations here, right? Um, and I'm thinking in particular of the talk that Jeffrey Router gave. He's actually, uh, I believe, a cognitive psychologist. So he talked about like what sort of patterns might you expect? So maybe one group um, moves in one direction, another group moves in the opposite direction. That's a possibility. Or everybody moves in the same direction to the same extent. Or maybe some people aren't affected at all, but other people are moved. But when they're moved, they're only moved in one direction. So those are all like kind of different patterns um, of data. And you can model those. And he was using Bayesian model comparisons um, specifically to see which best fits the data. And I thought it was just such a like a uh, step above just comparing two means in, in a way that's almost like, like, whoa, you're doing this like entirely different thing here. That was so cool. Right. Yeah. So I, 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 I've heard now from a few people who about this specific session and I regret not attending. I, I attended something terrible instead, and I won't say what that was. Um, okay, so I'll answer the question myself. What uh, talk I saw or what I learned uh, that most excited me? And I must admit, this one surprised me because I, uh, and I went because, you know, the overall uh, symposium seemed interesting. And this, the, the title of the symposium put together by um, Mazarin Banaji um, and Benedict Curdy, um, both at Harvard, is called Computer Resident Language and Naturalistic Conversation as Windows into Social Cognition. And one particular talk was fantastic. And it was by um, uh, someone named Aileen uh, Kaliskan uh, from the Department of Computer Science uh, at George Washington University. So this is a computer scientist who is analyzing essentially the language of the internet. I mean, like all the words out there and the various corpuses, corpi, I'm not exactly sure what the, uh, the, the plural is, um, and examining 
associations with words. And the title of her talk kind of gives her the punchline, and that is algorithmic measures of language mirror human biases. And essentially what she found was that the same sorts of patterns that one might find in the IAT, the implicit association tests, such as, you know, an association with, you know, um, uh, African-American and bad and, and, and Caucasian or white American and good is found in, you know, in, in words and, and, you know, um, when you when you examine the association between words, uh, same thing with you know women, uh, their evaluation, and it was it was it was kind of mind boggling, um, the scope of the project, and also it was kind of interesting and amazing to me that to to a large extent, these patterns just found in natural language, uh, mimic uh, what has been found with again the implicit association tests, which to some extent validates the implicit association implicit association test, but it validates it in a way that is different than I think is typically talked about. And that is it might kind of, one interpretation of that is that the IIT reflects, you know, cultural biases. It might reflect kind of the norms of a society as opposed to what an individual, him or herself thinks or believes or implicitly uh, associates. Um, so anyways, I thought it was excellent. It was, it was amazing. Yeah, I was in that session as well and and really enjoyed it. Uh, we will put a link to her paper in the show notes. I think it came out in like Science or Nature, one of these super fancy places. Um, all right. So next question for you, Yoel. Um, do you think there are areas or topics that are understudied in social psychology? Uh, kind of a second way of ask, ask, asking that is what topics should social psychology focus on that is currently not or not enough? Yeah. Wow. Um Yes. You know, I, I noticed that the guests struggled to answer this and I should have been better prepared. Um, I mean, Paul Rosen wrote this this piece a while back now about what we're not looking at. And I, I think the two things that I remember um, him mentioning are sex and eating. And I I hope that I'm remembering that correctly. And those that the, that isn't just like that. Those things are personally important to me. Um, I mean, and we do have people studying sexuality, but it's sort of like marginalized in a weird way. You know, like uh, it goes in more like discipline journal, uh, like area journals, and they have their own area conferences and stuff. I just feel like, wow, that's something that's really central to people um, and that we don't like have that much to say about and that we could be more interesting about. And and food as well is something that like goes into these like specialty journals. I, Paul's done a lot of work on that, and I'm obviously a huge fan of his, so maybe that's biasing me. Um, but that that's something that's like so central to my life. I eat all the time. I love it. I want more about that. Like it, it feels like we're, we are kind of like compressing the richness of human experience a little bit into, yeah, it's probably partly the laboratory paradigm, right? Like what you can do in a context of a 30 minute experiment. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the, the, the limits of experimentation. We'll have a, maybe a whole episode on that uh, coming up. Um, okay. So I'll answer this question and I agree. I also did not prepare for this. Um, what topics are understudied in social psychology? Uh, my answer, I think is really similar to yours. Um, and, I want to maybe kind of, uh, one way of answering is saying like what I think there is a lot of, and I don't want to say too much of, because there can't be too much of of, of of some things. But, you know, I looked at the uh, the overall conference, uh, you know, sessions and talks, both at the main conference and also I attended a, a pre-conference, a well-known pre-conference called Person Memory, which is a, a social cogni uh, cognition pre-conference. And I, I shouldn't say I'm surprised or amazed, but I would say about half uh, or close to half, if not half, um, were talks that related to intergroup relations, prejudice, stereotyping, 
um, things of that nature. And these are incredibly important topics, uh, especially now. It seems like it's it's more salient than ever and, and more important than ever, maybe. Um, but it just seems like it takes, again, half the space of social psychology uh, and again, uh, this is almost, you know, touches a little bit on uh, the sacred values uh, discussion we had a, a couple of, a few episodes ago. Um, I'm suggesting there might be, you know, some trade-offs with, you know, focusing, you know, again, half of our field on this, at least it's reflected in this one conference. Um, and I think there, there are some parts that we might be missing. So I think you're right, sex and food. And, and I agree with you 100% that um, it seems like sex, you know, it's a massive motivator for lots of people. Um, yet it's kind of, yeah, marginalized. It's kind of in specialty journals. They're not necessarily well-respected. And we spend a lot of time thinking about it. We wish we were doing it more. And some of us get the opportunity to do, do a lot of it. Or if we don't get a lot of get an opportunity to do a lot of it, you know, with other people, we get to do it a lot with ourselves. And, um, and we don't know much about that, or at least not, uh, it's not in the mainstream. Um, but in this, like, you can look at a lot of things that, you know, fall in this category. So what a lot of, a lot of us spend time doing, a lot of us spend time playing sports, watching sports. Uh, we really get into like, you know, the home teams. Um, and I don't know of any research on that. I mean, I'm sure, again, there are probably some specialty journals that are out there. Um, many, many, most people by far in the world are religious. Uh, and there are lots of journals now that are devoted to religion. And I think religion is, is making a, a kind of a, I don't know if a comeback, but it's becoming a, a more central interest to, you know, cultural anthropologists and to, um, to cognitive scientists. But I would still say it's kind of on the fringes of social psychology, um, uh, changing, but, but, but still on the fringes. Um, I would say things like, you know, recreational drug use, uh, which I would consider alcohol as part of that. Um, you know, marijuana, one of my, you know, my hobbies. Um, it, it, and we, we, if there's any study of it, it's only as an addiction. It's only as a thing that um, we should be controlling, uh, suppressing, uh, you know, doing less of. But clearly there are positive sides to these things too. And not just the, euphor the euphoria that is brought on by doing these drugs. There's some social benefits uh, that, Clearly, people you know people benefit from. Yet we never study these things. Um, so I would say you know there's a, there's a lot of holes in our in, in in what we study, and I wish we would study the full richness of social life um, more. Yeah, you know, one thing that struck me while you were giving your answer is like so much of what makes social life interesting is that it is a dynamic interaction between multiple parties, and that allegedly is what our discipline studies is like social phenomena. But in practice, because of our methods, um, often what we study is how one person reacts to a thing. And it's just tough to model like interactions between people. So I don't know if you saw, there's another nominee for best thing I saw at the conference, Talia Wheatley's talk. Yeah, where she was doing this modeling of like conversations between strangers. So how do you like even start to look at that, right? So you can look at stuff like, um, how many pauses are there between when party A stops talking and party B starts talking, right? So that kind of like flow of the conversation is one thing that could relate to people's perception of was the conversation a good one or a bad one. Or you could actually do a topic model of like you transcribe all of the things that people said and you can kind of come up with this space that like people's conversations exist in. You could say like, okay, what topics do people normally start with? Where do they normally go? How much do they jump from topic to topic? How are those things associated with people's perceptions that they had a good conversation? All of this stuff is super descriptive. It's not really hypothesis testing, but it's also really hard to do well. Um, and the stuff that she was doing was sort of like cutting edge new methods that you don't 
see that much, right? And the standard social psychology thing would be like, I don't know, you have somebody have a conversation with a confederate and the confederate is manipulated to either do like X or Y. And it's like, yeah, that's like useful for some things, but it doesn't, it, it feels like it doesn't really capture the richness of what we're really interested in when we're like, what makes for a good conversation or a bad one? Yeah, right. I, I really liked her talk as well. And um, she gave a version of that talk a few, a month ago or, or so uh, here at University of Toronto, which I appreciated. Yeah, that was, that was super cool. And I love that she's like, I don't know how to analyze this yet or, you know, how to kind of at least quantify some of this stuff. But like, here are the, kind of the, the, the starting points of how to do this. Um, so that was really cool. Um, okay. What do you think the future will hold for social psychology? Uh, so in other words, how will social psychology look different in 20 years than today? Yeah, so I think we're going to need to work together more with um, with different disciplines in order to say interesting things, not using experiments, right? So um, there's a ton of data out there that we can use to test theories in interesting ways. Um, this talk that you mentioned about uh, looking at IT biases, replicating those in natural language analysis is one example. But she was a computer scientist, right? So she brought these methods from computer science. And I think more and more that's going to be um, really important that we are able to work with people who can use those skills to help us answer these interesting questions. And I'm thinking of like CS is one obvious thing. So they can do a ton of stuff around um, natural language analysis is just one thing. Um, you know, the really like hardcore methods and stats people who can help us um, you know, model some processes in more sophisticated ways. Economists know actually a ton about causal inference from non-experimental designs. We don't normally, psychologists don't normally get trained on that stuff. Um, and I mean, I could go on forever um, and we were trying to be concise, but yeah, I, I think it's like when you move beyond the, I'm going to have a hundred people come in and do my lab experiment paradigm, then you start needing other expertise. And I think um, it's natural to look to other areas to, to help us out there. Right. Um, okay, so myself, I'll, I'll, I'll answer. I, I think I actually have two answers. Uh, so one is is very similar to yours. Uh, so maybe I'll start with that one. And that is, I think in 20 years, um, we will be working with computer scientists a lot more. And maybe even, maybe this is kind of a, a more pessimistic take on that, is computer science is going to start taking over what we're doing. Um, because right now what we have is content expertise, but I think our content expertise is really narrow. Um, I mean, it, it's broad, but not deep, I should say. Um, and, it, it, you know, it doesn't take a long time to master what we've mastered. I, you know, again, I'm ashamed to say this, but I think it's true. And uh, I think once, you know, they'll still need us for some content, but they're going to have the methods. They're going to be able to, to analyze the artifacts of social psychology in the data that's out there already. And you already see it happening. It's just starting to happen. But... You know, in the past two, three years, I've rubbed shoulders with more computer scientists than I ever have, ever. Um, and that's just at University of Toronto, where I mean, there's a big, actually a very good computer science department, and they've hired a lot of people, and people who are interested in the questions that psychologists are asking. And they're coming to us with kind of, again, content expertise, because uh, they can analyze the data and we can't necessarily. But I'm not sure uh, how much longer we'll have that advantage. So I think at one point, our discipline will be taken over uh, to some extent by more quantitative, uh, quantitatively minded folks, unless we start collaborating with them actively um, or start you know, improving our own uh, quant chops ourselves. Um, so that's one, uh, one answer. A second answer, also uh, maybe perhaps even more pessimistic, is 
And this, I hope this doesn't happen. Um, but I can see it. I can see social psychology splitting, you know, a schism in social psychology where there are going to be a group of people, uh, the kinds of people who are online now on Twitter, um, who are really, really gung-ho on reform and want reform and are not going to take no for an answer. Um, and then you're going to have the, the status quo folks who are still, you know, very much in power, still control of journals. And yes, we have some journals like Psychological Science that have made great strides, but a change of an editor, change of philosophy and all the strides, uh, all the advances we, 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 we made, as Brent Roberts warned us, um, can be reversed. And I, that might be happening. I'm not I'm not sure. Um, but uh, I hope this doesn't happen. But but I, I'm seeing you know, especially at uh, at this meeting at, at SESP, I saw more, at least not outright kind of a denial of the problems. I don't see that anymore, I, I, with, with very few exceptions. But I saw more like entrenched attitudes uh, protecting the status quo, even subtle ones, than uh, I'm used to uh, from being at University of Toronto and, and of course, being on, 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 on social media, on Twitter. So one possibility is that, you know, that my, my kind of prediction is not going to happen because eventually it's a lot of young people want the, the changes and they're the future of the field. So they'll eventually take over. But it could be that, we, you know, we, have, we kind of divide um, and we have like, you know, the quote unquote rigorous, you know, quantitatively minded folks uh, who are doing their thing. And you have the separate kind of uh, separate literature uh, that is uh, using the old modes of inference, uh, you know, maybe tinged with some improvements, but overall not, you know, you know, greatly improving. Um, and yeah, so I hope that doesn't happen. And what, even as I speak it out, it, it seems unlikely. But on my more pessimistic days, I, I, I sometimes worry that that, that might in fact happen. Yeah, I would think on a longer time scale, the older people just retire. Yeah, so 20 years. Uh, this, But, you know, they're still there's still a lot of great influence uh, by many of these people. And they are still influencing lots of young people that we don't see or hear from, you know, who aren't on social media, for example. True story. Yes. Um, okay, so that's, uh, we have our last kind of more, our lighter, our lighter questions, our, our last one. Um, can you recommend one thing you enjoy to our listeners? Uh, it could be a book, movie, TV show, podcast, or anything else. Wow, what a great question. Thank you, Mickey. Um, I just finished a show called Undone. It is Oh, man, is it on Netflix or Amazon? It's on one of the two. It's by the creator of BoJack Horseman. It is not a lot like BoJack Horseman, um, but it has this really cool animation style. It's like rotoscoped, which is where they draw over actual actors. Um, and it is just a really cool, interesting story. It's self-contained. It's like eight or ten episodes, I believe, and that's it. And that's after that, it's over. And it's about a young woman who discovers her ability to travel through time, maybe. And I'm, I'm not going to really say any more than that, except also that uh, Bob Odenkirk is in it, and he's awesome. Excellent. I would not heard of that, so I might have to check that out. Um I'm going to recommend a book. Uh, so I'm, I just finished uh, recently uh, a book called The Book of Why by uh, Judea Pearl, but I can't stand the way that's pronounced. It's actually Yehuda is his actual name, Yehuda Pearl, um, who is, all, again, a computer scientist uh, out of UCLA, I believe. And um, I got turned on to him by Julia Rohrer and uh, some other folks who were talking about causal modeling. And it's a whole book about causal modeling, um, how to... Um, 
infer causation from observational data, which again, you know, uh, for many traditionalists, including, uh, you know, lots of uh, uh, very well-known uh, statisticians of our day, like Andrew Gelman, they're very skeptical of this being possible. Um, I hope I'm not misquoting Andrew Gelman, but I saw him push back a little bit on this argument. Um, but Jenea Pearl, Yehuda Pearl, is, is, is suggested that no, in fact, uh, through uh, what he calls do calculus, you can actually figure out or you can make estimates of causality even from observational data. And of course, a lot of it depends on, you know, the, the causal model that you have in your mind. You have to kind of put that causal model out on paper and then you test it and you test competing and you test counterfactuals. And then you can have some kind of... Um, a Bayesian estimate for, you know, uh, the amount of causality you can estimate. And it's uh, it's a really, really interesting book, highly readable, uh, even though it's technical uh, in certain aspects. But I think he explains the concept really well. Um, and I highly recommend it if anyone's interested in, you know, uh, in causation and observational data. Cool. Uh, and what was the name of the book again? It's called The Book of Why. Excellent. By Judea Pearl. Yes. Okay, and my recommendation, again, is the TV show Undone, and that is available on streaming, forgetting exactly which streaming service. Sorry, I'm so bad. How are we so bad at this? We knew the questions in advance. I don't know. I, I you know, I had these on my computer for a long time, and I'm like, I, why don't I think about what are we getting wrong as social psychologists? I'm just copying you. And now you can imagine the pressure we put, you know, these poor souls uh, under, uh, just kind of grabbing them in the hallway, and they were forced to answer these questions. I can relate. Yeah, sorry to everybody who we did this to. This was literal violence. <laughs> That's right. Worse than applause, I think. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay. Well, um, I think that wraps it up for us today. It is. Uh, thanks for listening and uh, catch you next time. Mm -hmm.